This evening we'll have two passages from Scripture. If you would turn to Matthew 18, Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. That can be found on page 1046 of your Pew Bibles, as well as 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5 can be found on page 1213. In connection with both these passages, we will be reading from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 31, and that can be found on page 235 in your Forms and Prayers book. So once again, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, and Lord's Day 31. We will be reading on the topic of discipline, a few words of explanation, how we're going to approach this, because of how important this topic is, as well as how often it is so misunderstood or misapplied. We're going to take our time going through this Lord's Day and split it up into two weeks. So this Sunday, we will focus on what the keys are in preaching and discipline, as well as the purpose for discipline. And then next time, we will focus on the process of discipline and the result of discipline. So we'll be spending two sermons on this Lord's Day and the topic of discipline. Before we read, let's ask for God's blessing. Lord, we come before you to read your will, your word on this topic of discipline and how the church is to respond to an unrepentant heart as well as how the church is the keeper of the keys, the keeper of the keys to open the kingdom through preaching and discipline as well as to close it with those same keys. And we pray that we would see the warning embedded in these keys as well as the great hope that you have given to your church, this institution, the capacity to open the kingdom of God. And we know that authority is yours, delegated to the church, but we are thankful and we pray that you would help us be a faithful institution and the church be faithful to this role. We ask this in your name. Amen. We begin in Matthew 18 as we see here Jesus teaching on the process of discipline. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And now if you would turn over to 1 Corinthians 5. So there we, in Matthew 18, we saw the process set forth by Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians 5, we see Paul bring that to light and charge the church in Corinth to perform this very act against one of its members. 1 Corinthians 5, beginning verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. 
For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Since the reading of God's word. Now we turn to an explanation of this process in Lord's Day 31. We focus, yes, on discipline, but, well, here we see two keys of the kingdom, preaching and discipline. Question and answer 83. What are the keys of the kingdom? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline toward repentance. Both of them open the kingdom of heaven to believers and close it to unbelievers. How does preaching the Holy Gospel open and close the kingdom of heaven? According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is open by proclaiming and publicly declaring to all believers, each and every one, that as often as they accept the gospel promise in true faith, God, because of Christ's merit, truly forgives all their sins. The kingdom of heaven is closed, however, by proclaiming and publicly declaring to unbelievers and hypocrites that as long as they do not repent, the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them. God's judgment, both in this life and in the life to come, is based on this gospel testimony. How is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by Christian discipline? According to the command of Christ, those who, though called Christians, profess unchristian teachings or live unchristian lives, and who, after repeated personal and loving admonitions, refuse to abandon their errors and evil ways, and who, after being reported to the church, that is, to those ordained by the church for that purpose, fail to respond also to the church's admonitions, such persons the church excludes from the Christian community by withholding the sacraments from them, and God also excludes them from the kingdom of Christ. Such persons, when promising and demonstrating genuine reform, are received again as members of Christ and of his church. People of God, discipline is a dirty word in our culture. And if we're being honest with ourselves, it can often be a dirty word in our churches. And if we're Digging really, down, really far deep into our heart, we can even question, is discipline a dirty word to us personally? How do we view that process? 
As I said, we will be focusing on both keys, but we will sort of place more weight and emphasis on discipline as it is one thing that is attacked in our day and age. As I said, it's considered to be a dirty word, something that you wouldn't want to do. In fact, I've heard such statements by others as if Jesus would never do such a thing. Jesus would never call someone to be publicly disciplined or to be placed out of the church, but we see actually in both keys of the kingdom, in preaching and discipline, there is a mechanism upon which to open the kingdom of God, that the gospel would go forth and all the blessings of God would be made known. And in each key there is as well the capacity to turn the lock, to close it. The deadbolt slams shut and the door cannot be opened. These keys are very important. We are called to understand them, to know them, to heed the warnings as well as to heed the the representation, the presentation of the gospel to our life, to respond in obedience and faith. And we know upon doing that, the kingdom will not be closed to us. But there's that warning when we do not respond. Sadly, today the church is looked upon as an institution with no authority. Church hopping is regular. Leaving a church to avoid correction is commonplace. And if a church is going to exercise discipline, many think it's unkind, unloving, unnecessary, or we might even think it doesn't do anything. Why go through the trouble? Why go through the pain? You see, but the thing is, there's not a true member here who does not experience this key of the kingdom for your benefit. See, a way of understanding how both keys work, both preaching and discipline itself, is to understand that there's a discipleship going on here. And that every time in God's word we hear a correction or an admonition and we respond and we see that sin in our life, the key of discipline is working. It's discipleship. It's uprooting sin. It's it's a scalpel that comes in and surgical precision cuts away the sin and what needs to be removed. And it's a healthy process. You see, we all undergo discipline. In fact, the church couldn't be the church without this, without that process. You are disciplined every time you hear such preaching and respond. You are disciplined every time a friend of yours tells you that you were a little harsh with the way you spoke, and you respond and acknowledge that. We're disciplined every time. We might, as a group of friends or family, reflect and say, you know, I think we're, we're being a little unloving. Or I think we're being a little harsh. It's discipline taking place. The church has been given a tremendous responsibility to hold and use these keys of the kingdom. It is the keeper of the keys. It opens and it locks. This authority was clearly given to the church by Jesus Christ. We read two places in God's word where we have the process of discipline laid out, where we have the authority of the church expressed. This authority was delegated to the church by Jesus. Matthew 16, verse 19, Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. We are familiar with that text. You see, it comes though right on the heels of Peter's confession. Remember, Peter professes on behalf of all the disciples when asks, who do you say that I am? And, and he responds, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And it's interesting that it's right after that profession that Jesus makes this statement. 
The context there would then show us that that is the key at work. You see, the the center of the key that opens up the kingdom of heaven is the confession that the Lord, that Jesus is the Lord, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And any failure to uphold that confession or live according to that confession means the kingdom is closed to us. We have to understand the proper confession and that a denial of this confession is to face discipline. So question and answer 83 identifies what the keys of the kingdom are. Preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline toward repentance. So we look first at preaching. Preaching as a key. Is it too strong to say that though the church is the keeper of the keys, too often it doesn't keep them well? Is that, is that too strong of a statement? That we would look at how the church broadly exercises these keys and wonder if it's doing it as it should? Now certainly we might say, yeah, most churches might struggle to discipline, especially those that, that are not committed to the confessions, that are not seeking to, always to uphold that. And we could say, that's been jettisoned, it's been thrown away. But what about preaching? Is there a misuse of that key that goes on? After all, for a church to be a church, there's got to be preaching. You can't be a church without preaching. Well, just because someone might stand in front of a body of believers and speak from the Bible doesn't mean that that's preaching, or it certainly doesn't mean that it is correct preaching. For that key to be properly used and keep that imagery in your mind, for the key to fit in the slot and turn the lock and open the door, there's a certain kind of message. There's a certain type of preaching. It's the confession of Peter. But that has to be applied in, in more ways. It's a confession that then means Jesus is alone the way of salvation. And that to follow him means we walk in obedience and we're repentant. And if we're unrepentant, then we are not truly following. And preaching must contain warnings of sin. It must, it must preach that there is the danger of our sin and depravity and that there's only salvation in Christ himself. You can't wander or veer into preaching that might indicate that it's something we might do to save us. And so even the, the key of preaching must be utilized and exercised according to God's word. Preaching opens the kingdom by declaring that for anyone who accepts the gospel promise in true faith will be granted Christ's merit, have all their sins forgiven, and the kingdom of heaven will be open to them. Now just pause there. That is incredible. You can't just skip over that truth. The kingdom of heaven is, is it, it's everything. It's eternal life, it's the promises of God. And the Lord Jesus Christ has literally delegated and given authority to do just that and place the keys in the hands of the church. Go and make disciples. Go and baptize. And we can add to that commission and understanding as well within it that there would be the command to go and discipline. There's no other means or institution that exists that possess such keys or such authority. Each sphere of life has its own tool. The civil rulers, the nation has a sword, and the family has a rod, and the church have keys. And when we first look at that, we might think, well, the real power lies in the sword in the hand of the government. That's that they have real power and authority. That's an impressive tool for their trade. 
We might even in our day say even the rod in a family seems to have more weight behind it, seems to have more authority there with the way church discipline can be spurned. But in reality, of all those tools which are the most powerful, the most necessary to to see, well, keys... The keys deal with eternal destiny. Obviously, the others are vital and important as well, but these deal with eternal life itself. But just as preaching opens the kingdom, it closes it. And so as preaching that proclaims the gospel and faith in Christ, the true understanding of sin, how we truly obey, that opens the kingdom, preaching closes. And I think that's where we might be a little more confused or just not understand it. I think we can grasp, yes, preaching can open the kingdom by this message, but how does it close it? How does preaching actually close the kingdom? By proclaiming and declaring to unbelievers and hypocrites this is the catechism, that as long as they do not repent, the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them. You see, it's the warning of rejection. It's the warning of what will happen when you do not express faith. It's a rejection of the preaching and that's given of the gospel message that closes and locks the doors to eternal life. We have to take, uh, take stock of our own response to that. So often, departure from faith is when one disagrees that they don't need to repent because of some action. They don't need to heed that warning, that particular warning. They don't need to hear that it's a sin to leave a true church. They don't want to hear that whatever behavior they're, they're, under, they're going, they're doing, that they're living in, that they don't want to give that up, that they're in fact choosing that above Jesus himself. They don't want to hear that what that means is there's no place for them in God's presence. And that's what preaching declares, that how it can indeed open and can close. You see, the, the word of God never goes out void. It isn't just passive. We might think so. We might think if we're to proclaim and preach the gospel and someone hears, but there's no turn, that it was useless, that it did nothing. But the reality is it did do something. The Holy Spirit will either use it to open the kingdom or he will use it to close the kingdom to one such as that. And so you see our, our task as a church to go out and proclaim and use these keys is never lost. God exercises those purposes. We don't know who he will bring in, whose hearts will be softened, and who will enter in through that open door, and who will find that door closed. But we do know what opens and what closes it, acceptance of the gospel or rejection of it. Preaching will close the kingdom to those who do not respond. A hard heart and unrepentant unwillingness to repent of sin, to obey God, that has no place in the kingdom in whatever form it's found. The way into the kingdom is narrow. It's not broad. It has only one door. It has only one key or two using this one truth, the gospel, that Jesus is our Savior, preaching that proclaims it, opens the kingdom, preaching that rejects it, is a misuse and distortion 
And so this is how preaching opens and closes the kingdom. But what about discipline? What about this other key? Look at the meaning of discipline first. What does discipline mean? As I alluded to already, I think we take discipline, we take that word, and what immediately comes into our minds is, is excommunication. We take that and we, we say, oh, discipline is, one, is when one's cut off from the church, but that's a misunderstanding of what discipline is. As I said, any true believer experiences discipline. Only their heart responds. And so discipline is a very useful tool in the church's hand. This is how we grow. This is how any true believer grows. But the reality is, for those who are not true believers, they will not be so ready to respond to discipline, to discipleship, to training. And so though we all undergo this process, yes, at times, Discipleship must move in a more formal direction, and it's performed not personally by us in our hearts, but must be performed by the church itself. And though many might want to stop here and say, these parts are unloving in the church if we're to to discipline in that way. Christ wouldn't do that. It's actually this is true. How thorough, how concerned we are about discipline in the church will indicate how much we love Christ and our people, our neighbor. So you can sort of turn it on its head. Is it really unloving to discipline? Now, that's not acknowledging the fact discipline can be done unwell or or in a wrong way. But to neglect to discipline, is that showing a heart of love for Christ and his people? Or rather, the opposite. What do, you, what do you say, what do you think when you see parents who are unwilling to discipline children? Do you walk away and, and, and think, boy, that, that, those parents are really loving as their child was uncontrollable, rude, dishonoring, harmful to himself and others, poorly thought of by all who saw them. Was, is that loving parenting? We, of course, know that that's not the case. In fact, that's to be an unloving parent, even if it's not coming from a heart problem or ignorance or something like that. It's actually an unloving act to neglect discipleship, training, and discipline of your children. And the same is true in the church. We all need correcting hands. And that's what I'm trying to get at with the fact that we all experience this. We've all felt the guiding hand of God's word and preaching in the church nudge us back to where we needed to go. We've all felt the the sting of knowing we were wrong and need to repent. We've all experienced besetting sins that we fight against and repent with. That guiding hand of discipleship and training and discipline is a wonderful thing. That's how God sees discipline. Hebrews 12, verse 7 and following. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. That's the point being made. To to not experience discipline doesn't mean your father loves you. It means he does not. Because he will discipline and disciple his children 
Continues, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? Or take Proverbs 22.15, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. These are just two of many examples that show us how God uses discipline to correct and to train his people you see, then, in the discipline of the church, the love of God? Do you see in the discipline of the church the love of God? Now, that question will be a lot harder for some of us than others. For some of us who've experienced the discipline come close to our homes and our families, our friends and our neighbors, it may be harder to say that, but I do ask that question in sincerity When discipline is exercised, what do you see? Do you see the church doing what it's been called to do and actually doing an exercise of love? Or do you think it is unloving? Are your thoughts of discipline negative? And if they're negative, what must you do to respond and see that this is not for their harm but for their good? This is not for their harm or your harm. This is for your good as well. It's never comfortable, it's never enjoyable to see discipline happen. Right? It's always a little awkward too, you know. You might have been caught up when when someone near you had to discipline their their kids and you know it's necessary, but you're kind of like, I feel like I shouldn't be here. I should turn my back or something. I don't want to necessarily witness this. Yes. It's necessary but unpleasant. It's not something we like to see, but that's not because God's plan is broken. It's because we deal with broken people. Because it's necessary, because we have hard hearts. And God has a correction, a way to respond, and he uses the church as an instrument for that discipline. That's what the church is called to do. That's their task. That's how we're all to see that. I understand that for many of us here, it's not as if we reject discipline. But I know that for some of us, when it does fall, it is hard to stomach, especially to those we truly and deeply love. And the last thing we would have is an utterance that they are to be treated as an unbeliever or an outsider. That's very hard. But when done properly and well, it is for their good interest, as well as the interest of the church. The church that decides, and we need to understand this, the church that decides not to discipline makes very little of God. The church that will withhold it will not stick their hands there means that they think God is about that big. Is that too strong to say? Can't be. Because what has to give? The standard of God's righteousness and holiness, his purity, his majesty, his power, and his authority. Because we we read the text, this is what he's called the church to do. And if we won't do the the hard work as the church, that doesn't mean we're showing love to our neighbor. It means we're showing a lot of, of disrespect to our Heavenly Father. We'll allow dishonor to be made of the name of God. And that's what we see. It's very clear, is it, 
loving to sit silently by and watch someone walk off of a cliff? Or is it loving to construct a barrier, in fact, to construct such a barrier that it hurts to climb over it to reach the edge of the cliff? That, that in order to, to reach your doom, you actually have to climb something that stings in order to keep them from their doom. That's what discipline is. That's, that's the, the hope. That's the intent. That there would be that response to someone in so much danger. And we see this in the purposes for discipline. If you're following along in the bulletin, there's a handout that has five reasons for discipline. And I want to go through them and explain what we do, why we discipline, all these purposes. 1 Corinthians 5 illustrates many of them. The situation in Corinth is bad. It's publicly known that a man is in an indecent, incestuous relationship with his stepmom. And Paul even says that you're arrogant because what they're doing is they're unashamed of it. They're unashamed that what's being allowed there, the world itself wouldn't allow. And in fact, they're likely taking that as a badge of honor and say, look at us, look what we're doing. And so he comes down and with a lot of his apostolic authority tells them what to do, to tells them to treat it as if he's there condemning this one. He's already judged this one. But why does he say this? So that this one's spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. There's one of the primary purposes which we'll get to. He also talks in verses 6 through 8 about the Passover and the practice of leaven in a house cleansing their house of leaven. What's, go, what's, what's being talked about there? In that, in, that, in that Exodus account, when the Passover was being done, the people were called to remove all leaven from their house as the blood of the Passover would be on their doorposts. That was signifying a putting out of sin, putting out of all other gods, of cleansing and purifying the house. And Paul's argument is that that was done for the Passover of the Old Testament. Jesus is our Passover lamb. And so what he's saying to the Corinthians church is that you are allowing leaven in the house of Jesus Christ himself, your Passover lamb. Sin is reigning there. Does that mean then you honor the blood of the lamb or you dishonor it? And so here are the reasons for discipline. First, maintaining the honor of God. Maintaining the honor of God. If unrepentant sinners are not disciplined by the elders of the church, the world would dishonor the holy name of God. People would dishonor God's name. Calvin says, For since the church itself is the body of Christ, it cannot be corrupted by such foul and decaying members without some disgrace falling upon its head. If the church allows someone to bear the name of a good member, of a member in good standing, of a Christian, and they allow them to bear that name, and they are living or teaching what is wrong and foul, how does that not but bring dishonor on God himself? God has so intricately woven himself to his people in the covenant that what we do corresponds to the honor of God himself. And so will we make little of God? by failing to purge from our midst that which God calls unrighteous and wrong? Part of discipline is to ask this question, is God's honor more important to me than anything else? 
And again, that becomes very difficult when we have friends and family who are walking away and we actually have to ask that question, is the honor of God more important to me than my loved one? We've already said it, discipline is for their good, but we need to have that question in our mind. How much do we make of the honor of God? Is it more than our own? Is it more than any relationship? Is it more than any friendship? So when discipline comes to this extreme end, this extreme remedy, it does hurt and it does require such a stance. Would you allow someone to come into your home and openly mock and dishonor your family or your wife and just allow them to stay as they, without changing, without any remorse, continue to dishonor her and continue to treat her in such a way that is foul and, and unpleasant and wrong? Or would you say, you must depart from my midst? You must leave this home. What then do we say of how we view God when we would allow, or if we would allow, what is repulsive to him to have a place in his home? Maintaining the honor of God, that's the first reason we discipline. Second, maintaining the honor of Christ's church. Maintaining the honor of Christ's church. Our text shows already that in the earliest days the apostles were performing this and were calling upon them shame and the dishonor that they were bringing themselves in their communities. It's dishonoring to the church of God itself. And that's the point of that, that yeast or that leaven, that it would come in and it would corrupt the whole lump, it would corrupt the church. According to Calvin, there is an urgent need to maintain the honor of the church since there is nothing easier than for us to be led away by bad examples from right living. What this really is getting at is the purity of the bride of Christ, and that's what we are. And when we think about it that way, we should see again that reason. We are to be the pure bride of Christ, and so we can't allow sinning in our midst open and unrepentant sin, because that's the issue. We're all sinners. We're not all perfectly pure, but true believers are repentant, are broken by sin, turn away from it. We won't glory in it. And that's the situation in Corinth, too. Paul's saying, I'm not calling you to step away from, from the world, to step away and remove yourselves from sinners and idolaters and sexually immoral and the rest. What he's saying is, if there is one who claims and calls himself brother and yet engages in such things and, and, and would do such things, to turn away, to cut off. They don't have truly the name of Christ on them when that's their heart. And so we maintain the honor of Christ's church. It's pure. Third, third purpose for disciplining is to restore the sinner to the Lord. And we could call that, in one sense, the primary goal. And not to diminish maintaining the honor of God. That is as well a primary goal. But as the intended result for this person that's being disciplined is not just that they be cut off, it's that they be restored. It is then an action of love for their good and not their harm. The door to the kingdom is open for repentance, but it's sealed against those who would walk away. But even, we say that in truth as the final result, but even the act of excommunication isn't the end. Or I should say it need not be the end. 
for them to repent, they, they, they come back in, with open arms to be received again as true members. It's done for their good. And so you who face discipline, even of those close to you, see the purpose and pray for it. You see, the biblical response isn't to say, the church can't do that to my loved one. It's to say, I pray that through this process they will be brought back. And we all need that. So it's restoring the sinner to the Lord. Four, it's for a deterrent. It's a deterrent. It's it's meant to prevent others from so freely and easily falling into destruction, from following in their footsteps. When sin is tolerated, it would tempt and lead others to sin. And since there would be no fear of reprisal, since there's no fear of the church stepping in, all the more would that route of sin be opened and tolerated by the church. So it's to deter the practices of sin itself. And fifth, the purpose of discipline is for safety. Safety. It's to prevent the wrath of God from falling on the whole congregation. Is it that dire for the church to fail to, to discipline such blatant and public sins in its midst, is there really that danger? Achan in the Old Testament in Joshua 7 took for himself what he shouldn't have. In the destruction of Jericho, it was all to be destroyed or given to the Lord. He took some of the, the treasures for himself, and the wrath of God fell on the entire congregation for the sin of this one man. Because there was impurity in the midst. We could think, well, is that just the Old Testament? Apart from what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 on the sickness and death that had come upon them because of their misuse of the Lord's Supper, we also could turn to such places like Revelation 2.15. In Revelation 2.15, there's a letter to the church in Pergamum, and it says this, So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So what that letter to that church is warning them is you are tolerating not only sinful practice, but sinful teaching. And unless that is dealt with, I will come to you, as he says, with the sword of my mouth, there would be judgment to come on churches that would tolerate either behavior or doctrine that corrupts God's word, that corrupts the gospel, that is sinful and wrong. There is danger to the entire congregation. And so, people of God, a failure to discipline is dangerous for the body of believers itself. It also helps us to see that even in cases where a believer does it, or an unbeliever does not come back and respond, even in those cases when we pray for them to repent and they don't, discipline was not ineffective. The pruning of discipline is for the safety of the church itself against the wrath of a holy God. This is why we discipline. This is why at times it's called to go all the way to excommunication. It's never the goal. It's a lengthy process. It's done in love. It's done fully with the intent that they would repent, and that is the prayer is all along that step. But withholding this process would mean only failure to the church and only further hardening of heart to the man or to the woman 
that you wouldn't care enough about to go after in this process. Sin breeds sin. Sinful behavior produces sinful behavior. And against these, the church is equipped with two keys. Preaching and discipline open the kingdom by gospel proclamation and discipleship. The kingdom is open by those, but they close the kingdom by declaring judgment on the unrepentant and excluding from the Christian community those who will not repent. These keys rightly uphold the gospel. They rightly maintain the honor of God, and they rightly express love to our neighbor. We are to be thankful for the authority that Christ gave the church, and we as well as, as all of us, each of us members under it, to submit and to respond to the voice of God, for what is bound will be bound in heaven, what is loosed will be loosed. Amen. Dear Lord, we come before you and we see the process of discipline having meditated on it and we know that your purposes are at work there. We bring to mind those in our midst who may be wandering, those we may know by name and those we may yet not. And we pray, Lord, that the preaching of your word would bring them to repentance, would bring them to Christ. We pray that for those who are called to undergo even the, the formal discipline of the church, that they would respond and repent. And this is your process, and we trust that it will work according to your designs, whether it be to bring our brothers and sisters back or whether it be to harden hearts and to prune off to protect your people. We know that you have all of this in your plan and your will. We also pray for the office bearers here that you would give to them strength and wisdom as they hold and exercise these keys. We pray that here as well as for the church throughout the, the world, through the globe, that they would exercise the authority given them to the honor of your name and to the love of their people. We pray this in your great name. Amen.